0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees.
1: Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm bouncing off the walls again. Whoa. And I'm looking like a fool again. Whoa. I threw away my reputation. One more song for the radio station. I'm bouncing off the walls again. Whoa. And I'm looking like a fool again floor pull myself back together to fall once more matt stocks
0: how are you marco
1: i am good nice to see you man
0: good to see you here we are finally it feels like this has been a very long time coming does not it
1: i know i know totally man and it's weird like it's it's just part of this nature of this like internet world we live in where there's like people you feel like kind of familiar with even though i've never met you before or seeing you in real life, you know, or talk to you in real time until now, right? Like I just sort of feel like I follow your Instagram, I've listened to your podcast before, you've interviewed like so many of my friends. So um, this is just cool. It's it's like this culture that we're in right now where we can kind of talk to people across oceans through Zoom in real time and whatnot. It's like, it kind of reminds me a little bit, like the closest we ever got to this before was just constantly touring.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah
1: you know, just cruising around the world and like running into people you like, I'd run into like your pal Jared from bowling, (coughs) excuse me, from bowling for soup, like in Japan, you know, and we, you know, you kind of forget that, wait a minute, I'm from California. You're from Texas. Like, why is this so normal that we're like hanging out at some place in Japan? And it feels so, I don't know. So I, I think I was kind of in a weird way, all of us from the touring music world are kind of oddly suited for this, uh, this era of like no borders, no limitations, you know, no rules.
0: I've been thinking a lot about how any of us would have really got through the last 18 months without this stuff. Um, you know, like for a while I wasn't doing zoom podcasts at all. I was just doing phone, but even, even like, even the ability to call someone up, because if you're just trapped indoors and there's nowhere to go, I mean we'll just jump straight in on the pandemic why not let's start there get the bad stuff out of the way but like it's just been a godsend for me having this format and and my show like having the ability to reach out to people and connect with you know people that I admire and love and just escape the reality of the situation if only for an hour um and and talk about things that you know ignite our passion and our interest and and help us to remain connected even in these really kind of you know fractured and and crazy times um what's been going on with you for the last 18 months how have you been navigating because you're a dad right you've got kids
1: yes i i like to say i have two that i know about so yeah Um, so have have they
0: been like going out of their minds how have they been
1: well, I think, uh, you know, I don't think anyone has had an easy, you know, an easy go through this, uh, you know, through this pandemic, but, um, you know, I feel in a way it's like they're teenagers. My kids are teenagers. So um, one is my daughter's 14 and my son is 16. He turns, you know, he, he actually turned 16. Uh, he turned 15 at the, be- his birthday's in March. So he literally turned 15 right when lockdown happened mm-hmm. and then turned six. So he's had two birthdays within the pandemic. Two kind of like, if I look at my history, which I'm sure we'll get into later, those are very like watershed years for a for an, a person in their yeah. life. Like turning 15, turning 16, that's when you kind of like, you know, you're in the middle of the teenage tunnel. You You enter this tunnel as a child, you know, playing like Legos when you're like, 12 going into 13. And you get spit out the other end. And you and at least in our country, they call you a grown up at Mm -hmm. 18. And it's like, well, 19, let's just you know, but like, that's kind of crazy. So like the teenage tunnel is when so much happens, you know, it's when you figure out maybe what you're gonna want to be, which direction you're gonna want to run in life. It's when you it's when you start to like, you know, instead of being annoyed by girls you actually start being attracted to them and then maybe by the Switch end which is you, great yeah. isn't it That uh, you're like right. oh, "Hang on
0: these people so, are actually amazing they're not the enemy. i know they're like the gift
1: <laughs> yeah exactly and, and and like the things you maybe have been working on since you were a kid start you start to like get better at you know like for me and all my friends we went from like absolutely just impossibly hopelessly sucking at our instruments to actually being able to like play a little bit to the point where we could like, make up songs that sound like the real thing and start to play shows and and maybe even get taken seriously if we could fool enough people, you know? Which is, it's a, it's a very important stage of, chapter of life. And uh, so I just feel for, you know, a big part of that is being able to know that you have like, security at home, but you can like fly away for a little while and be, and sort of test out, test the waters and then be able to come back to a place that's gonna welcome you back. Um, Well, at least, you know, for, (laughs) you know, there's a lot of kids that aren't so lucky to have that, but um, you know, if you have a loving home and for, for our kids during the pandemic, it was like, just when they're at that age where they should be able to go out, go to parties with their friends and go hang out and go, you know, be independent is exactly when it was like, the gates got shut and they were stuck at home with their parents yeah which is not natural you know
0: no no. and and as you say it is the exact time when freedom should be getting tasted for the first time and i genuinely think and it hasn't been easy on me by any means but i genuinely think i look to my friends with kids most of their kids are younger than yours but it's those teenage to sort of let's say 21 and kind of cap it there that's got to be the most difficult time for this i think especially people coming out of like high school college university mm-hmm. your life should just be starting and ramping up and oh and everything, yeah everything's taken away
1: yeah well, i mean one of the other things i do um now is i've actually kind of reinvented myself as a college professor um I've, and I've, so dude, I...
0: I've been reading all about everything you do and like me oh, okay. um you're a man <laughs> of many capes and um... I'm, yeah,
1: I am a uh, I'm definitely a, a a restless weirdo. So but I, but, you know, I, I jump into these situations and I think usually it's just out of curiosity. And then you kind of get in, if you find that you're like, you know, that you enjoy it. And if you're good at it a little bit, um, then you just kind of go for it. And it's like, you know, to me, it, like when we, you know, we get into this, all the things I've ever done, bands I've played in from going out and DJing, from doing writing stuff um, to, you know, lo- this like college lecturing world, to me, it's all connected to the same source, you know, so which it's about
0: is your interest in music, right?
1: Love of music and love of life, you know, just the idea of like wanting to like, you know, wanting to connect with people, um, you know, and kind of get past first base with people, not just like, Hey, what's up, dude, cool right on, you know, but actually like get to people, um, you know, taking something that's inside you and bringing it outside of you and having it maybe, synergize with other people's the same thing with other people and having i feel like that's how some i don't know it's just how life becomes a little more interesting than just this kind of mundane rope drill between you know summers and winters you know what i mean well dude, so, what
0: you've touched on there is exactly why i do what i do is that kind of need to share the experience meet like-minded people um and create a bit of that positive friction and then that's where the fun ideas start happening and sharing what you've learned as well. And then learning what other people have learned and and kind of sharing that knowledge together and growing together. Um, That's really been what's gotten me through this last 18 months. Actually, Marco is is this kind of exchange of ideas right now,
1: dude. I mean, you're, you're, you're totally speaking my language right there. It's just like, and to me, like, honestly, like I've never really considered myself like, a musician's musician. Like I can, you know, I wasn't even really a guitar player before I joined up with the guys in Sugar Cold. I was primarily a guy who started out on guitar as a kid and then switched to bass so I could be in a band with my friends that were better at me than guitar, because just because I wanted to hang out with them. And um, and then eventually just when I was about to hang up my cleats, I met these other guys and the guy the singer was like dude i wish i had met you a month ago but i already found this other guy to play bass but like you and i just hit it off so well aesthetically and we just connect and i was like well fuck, dude call me if that guy ever doesn't work out and he calls me like a month later he goes dude um do you know how to play guitar at all and i was like yeah i mean sort of like who doesn't have a acoustic guitar leaning against their wall with like you know punk stickers on it of course like i'm like everybody else i you can you know play you know hammer outs and bar chords and campfire chords and um and he's like no but like would you want to like play lead guitar um with us because i feel like this band's not supposed to be a trio because they just start together as a trio i'm jumping around here but like that was this what is, just, this is that,
0: sugar cult though yeah? that's what became
1: sugar cult and yeah. honestly like i literally had no expectations other than oh that sounds like fun like that would be a challenge to like you know it'd be excuse to play guitar standing up and like maybe you know get better at playing guitar um and i like this guy the singer guy tim we hit it off as friends and i like you know the song ideas then we just kind of hit it off like we started sort of finishing each other's sentences and like you said there's that friction where like he was coming from more of a background of just being a kid in the suburbs listening to the radio and i came from more of a background of being like a you know kid hanging out in used record stores and like just being a n- rock and roll nerd, you know, hence my plimsoll shirt that I wore to try to impress <laughs> you today. There we go, but go. I got across. a garage sale for 25 cents, like 20 years ago, by the way. Um, so yeah. And then we just hit it off. And the, I guess the point I'm making is it's never really been, I mean, a, and I'm not saying that I, w- that I think people who do it a different way aren't rad also, but like in my experience, I've always looked at music more as like, I'm a fan. I'm just like, I'm just crazy about rock and roll. And I like a front row ticket wasn't enough. I needed to get inside it. So I learned how to play just enough to like make up songs myself and get bands going in my neighborhood. And then it was just like, it was more about the adventure and the connection. And like the idea of, I knew I was going to encounter way less boring people. Through the avenue of playing in bands and touring and playing, show. you know, you just you just bump into interesting people all over the world. And, um, and to me, that's just a way more that's just the way I like to move through life more so than just like you know, kind of being a spectator and watching it from a distance and, um, and just marveling about it. You know, like I was that way when I was a kid, I had posters all over my walls and I would just sit there like daydreaming about like, wow, it must be so cool to be you know, a rock star, but like at some point you go, well, wait a minute, how do I, I can't climb inside my TV and be on MTV, I can't climb inside that poster on my wall. And then you, you start to you, you think it can never like it's not accessible. And then I mean, this is such a cliche story. But then what happens is, you start to notice you start to read the writing on the wall in your hometown, you start to notice like, whoa, there's other kids like playing in bands that aren't like real bands like aren't bands on the radio and TV. And that's when you discover punk rock, at least when I was growing up. Now, punk rock is probably something you discover on the Warp Tour or at the mall or whatever, or because, you know, when you saw Green Day at the stadium. But when I was a kid, punk rock was this little like secret music that was only like, tr- you know, kind of whispered to kids in class that was like, okay, you don't fit in and you're a weirdo. You probably like this. Check this mixtape out. And it just opened up a portal to this whole universe of, um, Possibility where it was like, Oh, this is something that you can do even when you have a shitty guitar and can barely play and don't look as sexy as you know Vince Neal or something like that in right? the
0: eighties in the eighties
1: <laughs> in the eighties yeah i mean i I grew up in the eighties and the nineties, so um anyway, man,' Not but the pandemic Vince, dude I'll there. tell you what like just to finish that up because I know you you wanted to start on that um honestly for me I I mean dude I had a pretty easy go I can't complain there's people out there that lost their you know people I know very dear friends of mine that lost their income from touring and people I know not just the bands but the people who work for bands at least the bands come home and they get publishing checks in the mail Mm -hmm. most of them you know but like a friend is the guitar tech you know tour managers people who sound people who work at venues you know for me I I'm able to do most of the stuff I do right now through zoom and um, and I live in Los Angeles and to be honest it was actually kind of a relief to not have to just like be out there in the grind driving around in traffic all the time I miss going to see live music but um, but I also at this stage of my life I really kind of embrace the opportunity to have some calm and introspection and and just you know going on long hikes and um, you know, reading things and doing, working on things I've been putting off, you know, it's just, it was a really nice opportunity to slow down because modern life just moves so fucking fast now. It's not really like at a human rhythm, you know? And so I, I kind of felt, I kind of just like leaned into it and, and embraced it and also selfishly because I had my kids and they're old enough to be self-sufficient. They were doing their school. Like they would just wake up, make themselves something to eat, go in their room, do their school. You know i feel for parents that have like three-year-olds or seven-year-olds they're probably going crazy you know yeah. but for yeah. me i was like my kids are self-sufficient um and selfishly i kind of got another i squeezed another year of of childhood out of them because they were stuck at home with us <laughs> so you know because the natural order of things if, if things if the pandemic hadn't happened they would have been out of here they would have been like at their friend's house all the time but this kind of gave us an excuse to be like, well, you can't go out with your friends because you got to stay home. So, like, in a way, it, it was actually kind of a blessing in disguise for for me. And I feel selfish and, and obnoxious to say that because I know so many people are, you know, not so fortunate. So, but, yeah, yeah,
0: I think it's just trying to get the best out of a bad situation, though, isn't it? And, and I think you can't begrudge anybody that has managed to take some joy and positive out of this time um, because it hasn't been easy and that sounds amazing that as you say that kind of last year in the teenage tunnel as you so put it put it so well to keep them in that tunnel at least there's that moment in time when you go well as soon as this is over you're off you're out so let's savor this moment together now and you had that and that's great I want to backtrack to punk which you were talking about there in, in such a way that relates exactly to although I was probably discovering punk at the time when it was commercialized i was into the bands that had kind of just come before that wave no effects were the band for me that like you know ignited my whole interest in the thing and it's funny because when i had joey cape on this show he was saying that rich kids on lsd were like the band that inspired Lagwagon and no effects and
1: yeah RKL they they were they were like we come from a town that Joey's a good friend of mine too and and um we come from a town called Santa Barbara okay so it's in Southern California it's about you know it's about 90 93 miles north of Los Angeles but like honestly it's a it's 93 miles geographically but like a thousand miles um you know culturally, Psychically, it's just a yeah. whole different vibe. There's no traffic, there's really not much crime. There's no tall buildings, there's no billboard advertising. It's just a completely different experience than, um, than most major cities. And, than then, you know, Santa Barbara is kind of this like, it's, it's, it's too big to be considered a village. But it's it's like situated between the beach and the mountains. And it's very, it's very sweet and you know, like, honestly, like I go there now to like visit my parents and I'm like, why the fuck did I ever leave this place? This place is amazing. It's like, you know, when you're an adult, Santa Barbara's like a dream vacation. You know, there's mm-hmm. great restaurants. It's charming. It's beautiful. When you're a kid, it's the most boring fucking place in the world. And you want to get the fuck out as soon as possible. You know it's just like it's driving you it drives you crazy when you're like a teenager because it's just so slow at least for me and my friends like the people that had like kind of these wild wild ambitions and and, um, ideas to do something kind of break out and do something Santa Barbara was not the right energy however it actually worked out really well to have a place that um it was pretty easy to become a big fish in a small pond in Santa Barbara because there wasn't a lot of people competing for the same, you know, there was, there wasn't a lot of other sharks in the tank. You know what I mean? Whereas you come down to LA and it's just like super intimidating. You got like the, you know, every kid from every corner of the world descending upon LA with the same ideas as you and the same, you know, trying to hit the same targets as you. And it's just like, so it, it was actually a really safe space for us to have Santa Barbara. It was, it was a place where you could really like grow something and have it be kind of organic and it wasn't really infected by that weird energy that, that you see in, in Los Angeles where people like it becomes this weird echo chamber of people like trying to become trying to jump on whatever trend is is happening at the time. and. Um, Whereas in Santa Barbara, and then also in LA, it was very, like, very segregated. Like There was like a scene for this kind of thing, very stratified. There's like these kinds of bands, these kinds of bands, these kinds of bands. Whereas in Santa Barbara, it was just kind of like there wasn't enough kids to have different scenes. So you just sort of were like, you're a kid, so you play music, so here's the place you hang out. And there's like, I remember going to shows. I mean, honestly, No Effects was a huge part of my um, development too, because they were like, kids from out of town that would come to santa barbara all the time and play when when but they were playing you know essentially the, the equivalent the california equivalent of like a basement show that you probably hear about like from bands from the east coast were like driveway shows because right. maybe because the weather's nice and because there's really not many basements in california yeah so bands would set up in driveways you you'd basically take the cars out and then the little box would sort of serve as like a frame for a stage and you have the drummer in the back and the PA and then the crowd would basically be on the on the so we'd be like in the actual garage and then the kids would be standing out on the driveway and then spilling out onto the street and that's how shows pretty much happened in driveways and there was a little place called the Red Barn that I, I've got it like I'll send you a picture of it um, it was like a little community space that you could rent out for 25 bucks and then you had to put down a hundred dollar deposit like cleaning deposit and Basically, it was just like Anything goes it was there was no staff you just they basically said you want your hundred bucks back You better not break anything and you better clean up and for us when you're a kid like hundred bucks is like You know your life savings. So we were like we play a show there and then go there the next day or like, you know, sweep up the place. Like you could like, you know, it, it looked perfect the next day. Cause the last thing you want to do is eat a hundred bucks mm-hmm. and not be able to do it again. And that was like a huge part of our community. Like all the people that came out of our scene from, you know, lag and later on like bands like, um, the mad caddies. And, um, yeah, you know, I mean, so many bands came from Santa Barbara, Nerf Herder, the Wet Sprocket um no effects really was from la but they would come down to to santa barbara i think their drummer eric had moved to santa barbara or was dating a girl in our scene in santa barbara because like it's it's, to me when i was like you know 13 years old it seemed like no effects were from santa barbara because they were just always playing in town um but uh but like you said rkl rich kids on lsd no one ever called them rich kids on lsd they called it rkl i didn't know what that was when i was a kid. But i'd see it like tagged on walls everywhere so i almost thought it was like a gang you know like it seemed like Th- that was gang- like me
0: with no effects i'd be like what the fuck does nofix mean what is that <laughs>
1: yeah nofix exactly we used to say that and and it was the same thing like me and my friends just skateboarding around and we'd be like what is this like it just seemed so cryptic it was like this isn't you know we were going to see like you know big arena bands we were going to see like motley Crue and iron maiden and And, uh, you know, Dio and all these bands back then. Um, And it just seemed like there was something else happening. And it was such a trip to see, like, these little things. You'd see, like, a sticker somewhere. But it wasn't, like, a well-made, like, quality vinyl sticker. It was, like, you know, crappy with, like, Xerox with, like, the ink, you know, cracking off. And you just were like, what is this? It was kind of like finding, like, hieroglyphics in some old cave or something like that. And you're, like, Mm -hmm. deciphering it. And then you'd see some kid at your school and they'd have like, I remember seeing a kid at my school and he had like maybe RKL written on his like folder in front of me in class. And I'd be like, what is that? And he's like, dude, don't you know, they're a fucking great band from Santa Barbara. They're from Montecito, they're from, you know? And then he, you know, I remember this one kid, he made me a mixtape and he's like, it was like, it had like maybe some descendants and some misfits and then like maybe suicidal tendencies or something on it. And I brought it home and it was like, you know, me and my friends are sitting there like trying to figure out how to play like the Trooper on our guitar and just like fingers falling, you know, going between the strings. And like all of a sudden, like after hearing that mixtape and then like maybe buying like a DRI record and a GBH record, it was like within like two weeks we had a band and we already had some of our own songs. You know, that was, it was kind of like, it really was a light bulb moment. And for me personally, like a lot of my friends were just like, all right, fuck it. Cutting my hair. I'm going to get a Mohawk. and I'm going all in on punk rock for me. I never really stopped liking like the rock star spectacle. Like I still loved like the, the big giant, you know, arena bands and bands they played on MTV. But I also loved, you know, it was, it wasn't like a binary either or choice to me. It was both. And I was like, this is great. You, It's like, you know, you can have these big industrial scale bands and you can have these amazing little bands that are like playing tiny little, you know, underground places. Um, and, and it was just so fun. You know, it was like most of those shows were free or they were like three bucks to get into or whatever. And like I said, like with me, with me and my friends in my neighborhood, it was like we can either really suck at trying to we could try to learn other band songs and really suck at it or we can make up our own songs and like pretend like they're supposed to suck on purpose. <laughs> you know. So we like form our no, own little crappy. <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: and then so so we formed a band, me and my buddy, I'd moved to this new neighborhood. And my buddy, um, Dave, whose name checked in an early Lagwagon song, um, uh, let's see, he's he's the midnight landscaper. If you know the song, of, uh, which is called, which is that one called Stoke and the Neighbors, okay. Dave's the midnight landscaper and he's working overtime. And we are full bottle, full throttle tonight. He's also the guy in Barry the Hatchet. That's it's always, hey Joe, how is it going, bro? So we used to be such good friends. That's my friend Dave. Okay? There's a long story here, but it's probably something that maybe someone who likes this shit would care about. Yeah. No one knows about this shit. Okay? It doesn't get talked about.
0: It's why we're here.
1: (laughs) So we're listening to all these bands. We're kids, and then we look, get turned on to bands like RKL, and it just be, it blows our mind. Like I have this right here; these two records are probably the most important records in my record collection. RKL, keep laughing.
0: That's the T-shirt that Fat Mike had on at Slam Dunk Festival last weekend. Yeah. That exact design there. This, yeah.
1: Yes, this is great. And then, like, if you look here, like, you know, the guys in the band, unfortunately literally all of these guys, well, half of these guys are dead. Jason Sears and Bomber, Jason Sears, the singer and Bomber, who was kind of the like, you know, m- you know, he was kind of the visionary and the drummer of the band. He, They both um, died. Chris Rest, um, this guy is the guitarist of Lagwagon now. And then Vince Peppers, I can't remember what happened to him, but he's still alive. And he's, you know, these guys, I mean, these guys to us, it was like, this might as well be the Rolling Stones. It was kind of like, a band from our town can have a record that's actually like pressed on vinyl and a full color. You know, th- I mean, it couldn't. You couldn't believe it because it was like, you know, you had records by real bands, but this was like something that was from our neighborhood. And if you look at like the, you know, it was Mystic Records, which was this weird little label that I think they screwed over bands. I think they would like pay them 200 bucks and give them a couple copies of the record. And all the bands back then, no one thought, no one was really like. No one really had any business acumen. They were just like, "Dude, someone wants to press up a record, cool." Um, so I don't know. Um, but Mystic was a big thing. This was 1985. This record came out. Great record, by the way. Um, and then the other one. This was the one where we like, you know, we still weren't connected to them because these kids were all older than us. And you know, maybe you saw them around town, and you would like tell your friend, "Like, dude, I saw Jason Sears." And I was like, across the street, and I saw him. Like, it was as if you like saw a celebrity you know, because these guys were actually kids from our town doing it. But this was still maybe a generation before us, so it wasn't as connected. Then once we started seeing this other band, No Effects, they would be on every show. And they weren't big either, but it was like, you know, maybe one of the guys had tattoos. Maybe one of the guys, they just looked a little bit scarier. And like, they weren't from Santa Barbara, but they were always in Santa Barbara. So it was our first experience interacting with like a band that was like connected to our scene, but not from our scene and then i remember going to see them play some show and they had toured which was huge they were you know they were pretty trashy but i remember like you know you would see them play and then you see them hanging out like next to you while you were watching the next band and it was it was that weird moment where you realize like wow there's like this breaking of a fourth wall Mm -hmm. there there isn't this like rock star and then this fan it's just like You know, one minute you're watching this guy play, the next minute you're like helping him load his bass amp into a van, you know, just because he tapped you on the shoulder and said, hey, dude, can you help me? And I remember Fat Mike having this stack of records and and selling them for five bucks a piece. And I bought this off of him, like right when he made it. And this was like the first record NoFX ever put out. It was actually the artwork was done by this crazy, like scary Santa Barbara skinhead who we were all afraid of. So what um, is
0: on that? It's it's difficult to see. I can see it's mainly. Black this is hands. actually liberal animation.
1: It got re-released years later. Right. So this right, is yeah, the yeah. first original version of liberal animation, and this was their this this was like Fat Mike's label before Fat Records. Way sale. Just, yeah, and um, so this is kind of a cool cultural see, that's, artifact.
0: That's a cool and, piece of history, right there.
1: And I actually bought it, you know, as a kid. Like I paid five it. bucks to Fat Mike, and I mean, years later we become friends. I know Fat Mike, but like. At that point, he was like, you know, we're probably, you know, seven years apart, but when you're a kid and someone else is like, you know, maybe if you're 13 and someone else is like 20, it might as well be, they might as well be 50, you know what I mean? And so it was like this moment where you're like, wow, I gave this guy five bucks and he hands me this record. And then we brought it home and like all of our friends played. Shut up already. Freedom. Here, here comes the neighborhood. A200 club. Sloppy English. You put your chocolate in my peanut butter. All these songs were like, for us, it was like, you know, this was, this was like a guidebook. You know, it was like, Holy shit. Like you can make up your own songs that aren't that sophisticated. Like we can make up songs sort of like this. Um, and like they got like, someone from our scene to draw up the artwork, you know, this guy, I think he's now in prison. Um, I can't remember his name. Was, his name was Ryan Stevens. Yeah. He's really, yeah. Covered drawn by Ryan Stevens. He's really kind of a scary. Um, there was this weird group of like skinheads in our town that were like, they weren't like racist skinheads, but they were just like tough guys that just wanted to beat people up. Basically it was a small faction of guys in our hometown. And it scared the fuck out of me and my friends. Like we were little kids, just little like punters. And like we'd see these guys that just always had a mean look on their face. And you'd hear, so they get mythologized. You know, other people would talk about like, oh dude, I saw so-and-so, you know, just kick the shit out of that guy. And it was so scary, you know. And I remember like they always seemed to have a mean look on their face. And me and my friends were just like, you know, pretty happy kids, you know. We were we were like just excited about shit. We weren't like out to just like, you know, fuck shit up. And um, we were just out to, you know, be kids and try to, you know, try to get some girls and hang out and have fun, you know, Um, make up songs. And, you know, we were, I mean, we were literally kids like having sleepovers and and stuff like that, you know? So it was like, but we go, we start going to the shows and you felt this energy like, whoa, this is kind of like, these are kind of people that live outside of the law. This whole scene kind of lives outside of the law. And that's very attractive to you when you're like, just like, you know, just freshly going into puberty you're just like this is kind of an anything goes self-governed scene and I remember when we first played a show like we were so nervous the first show we played my little neighborhood band we played at the Red Barn um, and we were opening for another band from the scene that, that deserves more attention they were sort of RKL's counterparts they were called Rat Pack but they never achieved any like you know, international, um, acclaim, but they were just as important as our kale and no effects rat pack. And they had us play. And it was like this weird, like punk rock baptism for us or something where like, we, we started the set and we are like, Oh my God, we're going to get eaten alive. Like people are going to kill us. And then after the, and people start clapping and we were like, Holy shit, they like our little dumb songs that we made up at Dave's, you know, parents' house down the street from my house. And you know, the singer was like my friend Banks, who I'd like known since I was like in first grade, you know, we were like just best friends and he just had a skateboard and like, you know, it was kind of like audacious. And one day I just like handed him a bunch of my like shitty teenage poetry. And I was just like, dude, scream this, steal a microphone from your school, from your band room at your school. Cause that was the move back then. You would steal an SM 58 from the band room at your school. And that's how you had a microphone. Cause no one could afford that shit. I was like steal the microphone and sing this and you're the singer and he's like all right <laughs> You know, I was just like pretend you're like Mike Muir meets like Jason Sears and the singer of DRI and he's like okay so he's the singer like he wasn't like some guy who like took vocal lessons or had ever sang in his life it was just like here sing this scream it and he was just like okay so he's the singer and then our other friend who lived in town named Derek Um he was just good at stuff like he was just the kid who could do like cool tricks on a skateboard and like do it you know he just learned quick and we just basically said to him like hey dude um ask for a bass for christmas and you're the bass player and he's like okay i I don't know how to play bass i was like it's easy just follow my index finger when i'm playing bar chords on guitar and like he became the bass player it, and then, by the way, he was so good. He he was so smart. Like he instantly got way better at guitar than me, way better at drums than our drummer, and like became like this really musical person. And that was it. Would be Derek Plord, who eventually became the drummer of Lagwagon, and is no longer with us, but still kind of a legend. Um, so that was our little neighborhood band, just made like that. And we would play these. We'd play a show, and I remember those those Santa Barbara Boot Boys. They were called these scary skinheads coming up to me. After the show, and I was like, "Oh shit, here it comes! Like they're gonna like they're gonna hit us, or you know, tell us that we suck, or tell us to get the fuck out of here." And he's just like, "That was really good, man. If anybody ever fucks with you, just let me know." (laughs) I was just like, "Oh my god, we have protection!" (laughs) You know, like somehow the tough guys are like we've we've somehow earned their respect. You know, and I was like, "Oh my god, we're like these nerdy little kids, and these big scary guys are are gonna look after us now." And I was like, "Oh no, don't worry about it. I would never want to hurt anybody." He's like. No man, you guys are fucking good. You know, I was like, okay, cool. It's weird, like little things like that you remember in your life. But, anyways, man, I, I, you gotta, you gotta edit me because I'll just fucking blather on forever, and there's so much ground to cover. I don't on.
0: edit at all, my friend.
1: <laughs> okay, no, but I mean, in real time, like, stop me. Don't feel like you're being impolite. Just be like, Margo, back up. Tell me more about this other shit, dude. I'm so, have, but that's I'm a happy part of my story. That, yeah, that's a part of my story that that really, you know, it's funny, like all for the last couple months it's just been like doing interviews about sugar cult because we're um you know this uh, this year has been the 20 year anniversary of our debut record start static just came out on vinyl like a vinyl 20 year anniversary edition came out and like it's, it's all happening right now so we're doing all this press for that and i'm like that's you know the sugar cult stories is something i'm really proud of and it's something that's that's um you know important to a lot of people but i want you know, it's, it's like, it's really the tip of the iceberg. There's so much more like sugar coal was really the hail Mary at the end of a long winding adventure that started when I was like seeing no effects, play driveways and hearing about RKL. RKL was already like in the past by the time we all came around, you know, like they were like this mysterious band that had barreled through Santa Barbara and kind of like went through the forest with a machete and cleared a bunch of brush. And then we kind of just all the other bands kind of found their way. Like it was this little secret trail, like, Oh dude, I heard that there's a thing you can do. You can play this place, you can play this other place. You can put out a seven inch. It was like this myth mythology in our town. Um, and then, yeah, like I said, so you had our band illiterate, we were called illiterate in our hometown. And then you had this other band. Um, Oh, you know what happened? One summer, I the guys in illiterate like we basically we were trying to figure out how to gently tell our drummer that we wanted Derek to play drums instead of him and back then it was like a band is like almost like a neighborhood gang it's like you would never think to kick someone out of your band right that would be like it's like family you know like and so we were like how do we do this in a gentle way where no one gets their feelings hurt um and of course you know we're not like A band was just more like an identity and like a thing to do after school it wasn't something that we any of us thought would ever become our livelihood you know it didn't punk bands didn't feel like real bands back then it just felt like something you did because you weren't good enough to play like metallica or whatever guns and roses or something like that so um one summer we went here's the thing we're gonna do this like our singer banks had joined another band from his school because he lived across town and so me Dave and Derek were like how about we just kind of all switch instruments that's why I switched from guitar to bass I was like I'll switch from guitar to bass Derek will switch from bass to I don't know how about drums you know and then Dave instead of you being the drummer you can be the singer and Dave was like I don't know how I feel about that but sure I guess you know again there was no real like reason to worry about it because we didn't think anyone was ever gonna care so Dave became the singer, I became the bass player, Derek became the drummer, and then we got this guy from um, across town who was in a band called Threatened Hope. So there was two like kind of pillars. There was RKL in the rich part of town, which is Montecito, which is also where Rat Pack was from and where Joey Cape grew up. Um, and then the other part of town was kind of the, where the poor kids lived, and that was called Isla Vista. A lot of people just call it IV. And that's kind of a little like square mile college town that's adjacent to UCSB. So most people that live there are students or they're like families that can't afford houses. So they have like little apartments where mostly college students live. So you had Isla Vista. So you had a band there called Threatened Hope. No one really knows about Threatened Hope because they never made records or anything, but they were great. So it was like Threatened Hope and RKL were kind of our Beatles and Stones, you know? and um similar to the beatles and the stones you know arc the stones get the reputation as the bad boys but as lemmy once clarified for me when i got to talk to lemmy once he's like you know the beatles were the real bad boys man stones were all from london beatles were from liverpool mate you know he's giving me this whole thing about how the beatles were like fucking scrappers like fighting their way to and from school every day whereas the stones had had a little better of, of a go i don't know if they came from like more upper crust families or what, but it was a great thing. I was like, oh, that's so great. So RKL, even though they were crazy motherfuckers and half of them are dead and heroin addicts and all that stuff, at the end of the day, they had really big houses with families that could afford to take care of them. Whereas Threatened Hope were like feral, like street kids pretty much. Just kind of like, look, I am not want my fucking job. Just try not to fucking get yourself arrested and try to graduate from high school. Get the fuck out of here now. You know, like they had like, That kind of upbringing so they were a little more street and threatened hope um, had sort of fallen apart a little bit or something somehow their guitar player was available and and was nice to us I think he made friends with Derek and so we somehow got Chris from threatened hope to be our guitar player and for us that was like you know holy fucking shit we have like a grown-up in our band we're like fucking at this point we're like 16 we've got a guy who's like got a car and a girlfriend and an apartment who's like, you know, he's like probably in his, he's probably like 22. You know what I mean? And so it was like, no way we have like a dude who, ha- he has an actual Marshall half stack, like he's coming to our band. So it made us all up our game. Cause we thought of him as this like decorated soldier who had been in a real band, Threatened Hope, even though they were just another band in our hometown, but to us, they were like, to our imagination, they were like, just as big as RKL and no effects and like so we got him and then we got this other guy named darren from another part of town um to play guitar try i'll try to not go around the, i'll try to go across the street instead of go around the block here but like long story short we formed another band and we called it section eight which okay. became
0: lagwagon, didn't it
1: almost yeah so it became lagwagon very shortly after because there was another band in town that we kind of joined forces with a band called chemical that was like they sounded like almost like section eight we were like modeling ourselves more after like rock and roll nightmare era no um rkl and like we loved this band called excel from venice beach that they had a record out called split image at the time that we really liked so we were like and and maybe suicidal tendencies join the army era like it was sort of like metal influenced hardcore punk and then there was this band chemical in town that was more just like straight up like anthrax like just straight up speed metal you know like 80s speed metal where there was there was a whole bunch of bands at that point they were sort of like you know speed metal bands but they weren't like singing about dragons and wearing leather pants they were like wearing like cut off shorts and like gbh t-shirts you know there was definitely a moment that happened it was a
0: crossover time wasn't it
1: exactly crossover so i would consider that band more of a crossover band and their lead singer guitar player was joey Cake. And Joey to us, again, we thought of him the same way we thought of like Matt Rat from Rat Pack and Jason and Bomber from RKL. Like he was kind of mythologized to us kids cause he was, you know, several years older. He had facial hair. He had a real leather jacket. He had a girlfriend. He had a car, you know, all the like hallmarks of like to a f- when you're like 14 or 15, you see someone like that in your town and you're like, you're just still this dumpy little fucking kid. And there's someone else who just looks like they're they might as well be like a fucking movie star, you know, yeah. and like so Joey was this dude and he was and he was cool to us because one of our, you know, you have this weird thing where like we had our friends, some of our friends had older brothers and like if their older brother was friends with someone, then they would sort of be nice to us. So Joey was cool to us. And he offered to, um, we played shows together, he offered to come over and like bring his four track over to our rehearsal space and record us. And then what happened was, Joey's girlfriend broke up with him and eventually started dating Dave, our singer, okay? So it was a very small town stuff here. And Dave starts dating her. Meanwhile, I'm not telling you this, but all the while during this, I had, I told you I had not only switched to bass to in order to get Derek on drums, but I had also switched to bass in order to join this other band in town called Lost Kittens with a Z. So you know where this is going. Lost Kittens was a whole different vibe. Like I said, I never stopped liking the spectacle just cause I got into punk rock. To me, I still so love like one of my favorite bands of all time is Hanoi Rocks. Okay. So I we me and my friends, Chris and Luke love this band, Hanoi Rocks. And to me, they were, to me like punk wasn't punk enough at the point we got dropped in in the in the late 80s cuz it had, too many people had already heard about it and it was like everyone was skateboarding everyone was punk it wasn't that dangerous anymore but i saw a picture of Hanoi Rocks and i was like that is fucking out of that's that's like scary like i'm afraid to show this to somebody you know and then i would go down to LA and See, see shows because we found out about all these little clubs in LA where unknown unsigned bands were playing so we would pile into a car some with someone who's old enough to drive when we were like 14 years old go down to LA to like the whiskey and we'd see these bands like Faster Pussycat and Poison and Guns N' Roses before they became famous and they were so fucking outrageous to us they were like holy shit one thing is seeing giant bands in arenas and going okay that's untouchable another thing is seeing bands like no effects playing driveways and going okay this is rad this is much more accessible we can do this ourselves another thing is seeing something in between that where it's literally a band playing a tiny place but behaving as though they're playing an arena mm-hmm. and that's what those bands were to me i was like holy shit, this is like the combination of no effects and like you know fucking motley Crue or something this is A band that's like on the street playing, you know, to a small group of people and no one knows about them. They're kind of secret, it's secret music, but it's so outrageous and so so much larger than life. And I was really attracted to it. I thought it was so fucking cool. Um, and so I learned just as much from those bands as I did from like the punk bands like RKL and and Rat Pack and and No Effects, because the one thing I sort of had with like Having been a kid who came up originally loving bands like ACDC and Kiss and, you know, um, Iron Maiden and all that. The one thing I kind of lamented at punk shows, I was like, this is cool because it's so accessible. But I also kind of miss the, like, larger than life aspect. I miss, you know, I miss that. I, I I like rock stars. I think they're cool, you know. I don't, I don't want to, like, a lot of my friends were like, fuck rock stars, dude. Now we're all about punk rock. And I was like, I like it both. Like, is, I wish there was... I wish there was some way you could kind of have both. And that's when we we saw a band like Guns N' Roses. Honestly, I was like, holy shit, this is that band. This is that band.
0: That exact period in LA music history is so fascinating to me as well because all of those bands that became these stadium, you know, cock rock monster bands, they all, whether or not they were coming directly from that lineage, musically, culturally, they were all coming from that same place that started with punk rock. Weren't they? They were all punk rock feral kids that happened to just be perhaps more adept at their instrument, um, better songwriting skills, and they became these huge successful bands. But that time for LA music history for me was all about punk, and all of those bands that went on to conquer the world—you can trace all of their roots back to punk rock, can't you? In the early eighties.
1: I mean, it, you know, I don't, I, I'm, I don't know. It's like it's it's very it's very fascinating but it's also very complex it's it's not something that's just a black and white kind of binary thing that you can just easily pull apart unfortunately most of the bands that became mainstream you know that got huge like the the poisons and the guns and roses in my opinion most of them drove off the cliff and became like these fucking megalomaniacal fucking kind of like bum bombastic sort of atrocities and i sort of like at that point i was like oh shit, man but you know there's just something to be said for that like you kind of you you know you can't really have your cake and eat it too like it's very it, it took a long time for bands to be able to get really big and not lose their cool like for example i think a band that does a great job of that is and and I will say these guys are in my generation. I you know I've toured with these guys. I've talked to them. We went through the same timeline of like being kids into like you know eighties metal and then transitioning into punk rock and then eventually discovering like even cooler shit like the replacements and and stuff like that. And that's Green Day, you know, uh, who SugarCult toured with on the American Idiot tour. We toured with them in America and in Japan, and, um, and they to me came the closest to any other, any band I can think of, to really kind of delivering on that possibility of like, which is really unlikely, a fucking th- little three piece from fucking, you know, the East Bay. Like I, I again, <laughs> I, th- I heard about Green Day way before they'd be, yeah, I, I sound like that guy who's always like, I knew about them before they were famous, but I really did just, I don't know if that was just luck of the draw, cause I was positioned in Santa Barbara, California, and you're just able to hear about cool shit that's happening in LA and get down there early before, you know, we were there before the record companies got there. We were watching these bands play as little kids and like, you know, fucking they were passing us out flyers and stuff. And then a couple of years later, bands like Green Day would be coming through town and they play like the Red Barn, you know, um, and we would see them and then they'd sleep at our friend's house or come over to the after party and we'd be hanging out. And they were just street kids from the Bay Area. And we heard about that, and we're like, dude, this is fucking like, again, you're used to seeing those bands and then hearing the music and and being like It wasn't about whether the music was good it was just the culture it was like almost like the way an edm person just goes to a dance goes to a rave it's not like specifically because the dj is really good so much as because they just want to be somewhere where it's going to sort of be their tribe be their people be in that in the groove and be able to like have the back back the Atmosphere that they're looking for sometimes you'll specifically go and see flume play or something But early on it's just about like going to the thing and that's kind of how it was for us we We're just like hey, there's a band from that town. Let's go to the show to Show them that our scene doesn't suck <laughs> show them that some kids are gonna show up and so bands like Green Day would come to town and I'd listen to their early Lookout records like Kerplunk and and whatnot so fucking rad when they made it to reprise was just a mind blower to us we were like to us like the biggest you could get as a punk band was like you know bad religion, no control or bad religion suffer made even no effects at that point had gotten pretty pretty big to a level, but we didn't know it was possible for a punk band to like be on the radio I mean there had been nirvana, but nirvana to me was derived more from like um this sort of more cerebral like sst latter-day black flag and like maybe bands like the replacements and soul asylum and husker du, that people that were 10 years older than me considered punk bands but for me i was like that's not a punk band punk punk to me was you know like any kid like there's kids who are out there today that when you say do you like punk they say oh fuck yeah dude i love machine gun kelly You know what I mean? And there's kids from 15 years ago where you go, dude, do you like punk? And they're like, Oh fuck. Yeah. I love sugar Colt. (laughs) You know what I mean? And so every generation has their depending on when you drop into the ramp, you're going to have your own sort of definition of what it feels like for us. It was like punk was like RKL, no effects, bad religion. Um, you know, that was pretty much. And then like a little bit later, it was like screeching weasel, Mr. T experience, green day jawbreaker. And that was pretty much our world view of punk. And then you heard about old shit that people called punk. Like, you know, you, you'd hear about the Ramones. I saw the Ramones play with RKL actually. And you you, you know, you're like, you, you realize that there's roots to it. You're like the Ramones, okay. Um, but they called the Talking Heads punk? I saw that on, you know, when I was a kid, I saw them on MTV and I'm like, that doesn't seem like punk to me. But then you learn about, then you get, you know, your curiosity gets, even Blondie. You're like, Blondie's punk? What? I, I I thought that was that chick that sang on the song on the radio. And then you do that sort of cultural anthropology and it leads you back to CBGB's and Max's Kansas City and all that shit. And again, being from California, that shit is so exotic and so exciting that you you know you learned about all these characters. And I just, you know, fell in love with like, you know, the heartbreakers and the you know, all that stuff that came from that scene. And it seemed so, you know, so fascinating. And then you hear about the LA bands that were happening. You hear about the germs and all this other stuff. And it's just like, you know, it's just you, you keep revealing more and more layers and digging deeper. And that leads you to finding out about David Bowie. And you're like, wait, what? The guy who sings fucking Let's Dance, you know, like with the like 80s suit jacket on. And they're like, no, dude. That's not who David Bowie is, even though I personally love those records. Now, at the time I was like, I was on the other side of the railroad tracks. I was like, that's like Duran Duran and fucking all that stuff. That's not my, it's not my, you know, that's, that's not the side of the classroom I'm sitting on, you know, but then you hear about it through people that you trust or respect or fascinated with. And then it leads you to like Ziggy Stardust and Aladdin Sane and like, you know, hunky Dory. And you're like, holy fucking shit, this this is what was happening when I was like a toddler, you know, this is, this is insane. Like how cool is the fucking world? I didn't know shit could be this cool, you know, cause all you ever hear about is the mainstream tip, you know, narrative, like yeah, the Beatles and the stones and blah, blah, blah and the Who, And then, yeah, the Ramones happened in the clash. And then, you know, you, if you hear just the sort of cursory mainstream example of music history, there's so much cool shit that you miss. So when you go back and really do that, like I said, that, that deep dive, you find so much cool stuff and then really connect the dots and it's just opens up, you know, your universe just blows up again. Even Aerosmith. If you, if you came to the, you know, Aerosmith to me was like, what fucking dude looks like a lady. And all those like insipid ballads. And people are like, hold on a second, dude, go back and listen to fucking night in the ruts and you know, toys in the attic and rocks. And you're like, this is the fucking coolest shit in the world like holy fuck you know it's just it's super fun um so anyways at that time in life i had also joined this with these two guys uh luke and chris um and i'm name dropping again because chris is chris shiflett who's now the guitarist of the foo fighters for the last 20 years and they were these other kids in town like literally they went to this high school and they were a little bit older than me and i went to this high school and we'd see each other at shows and you'd be like who's that guy like how come he has a shirt on by a band that i know about no one else knows about like what the fuck you know like it's almost like a rivalry at first and then you eventually kind of go up to him and be like like we got inter- you know introduced through a mutual friend and realize like holy shit we love all the same shit and we're like both like the total misfits in our group of friends because we we also love you know we love punk rock but we also love hanoi rocks and you know um and then you know we also we bonded over knowing about all these la bands that were happening at the time so we'd go down and see these bands and then we started a band that was sort of in that spirit called lost kittens um actually they had a band like that and they they needed a bass player and they asked me if they could have derek from my band illiterate that's how i joined up with them it's all very interconnected sorry if i'm just kind of running. Oh, all dudes, I absolutely. i'm probably a little it. bit nervous
0: don't dude, don't be nervous. I absolutely love it, and it's fascinating to me because I never knew how intrinsically linked to the history of like fat records, Santa Barbaras. But you know, you're saying you've oh, got yeah. ov- obviously Lagwagon and Mad caddy which I knew about because they're from there. But then you have that no use for a name connection and the gimme gimme's connection, and just no effects and their kinship to that part of the world. And then you also had you mentioned Montecito, right? Is that a right the, the area you mentioned so i was yeah. doing an interview with dave fortman uh, a while back and he was telling me about how lynn straight stole the church pa yeah. from, from that part of town for obviously snot um was he knocking around on the scene did you
1: 100 oh, straight was there you know like i said there was these names you heard about like for us we we grew up in the sort of north part of the, of the city called Goleta. And then there's, there's the other side of town, there's some Santa Barbara proper. And then there's Montecito, which is, you know, probably the, the southernmost part of Santa Barbara, if you don't count, um, Carpinteria, a few, you know, it's like another couple exits down. So you had these kids you hear about, like we, we, you know, there was a place in the eighties called the state arcade. It was like the big video game arcade. And there was a bench out in front of it. And you would, when we were like literally children, like this is like when we were like You know nine or ten years old you'd be going there to like play video games and like it was scary you had to walk past this like full bench of people with like tri hawks and mohawks and you know they looked so scary and you know i remember seeing them as a kid and i was kind of scared like it was almost like you wanted to cross the street and like take the long way to get to where you were going because you were afraid you were just afraid of them you know and i had been to england like i'd traveled to europe with my with my mom when i was a kid and seen like OG punk rockers you know see like the anarchy symbol spray painted everywhere and Mm -hmm. you know when you're like a little kid you just don't know what to make of it it looks kind of cool you're like this is fucking awesome but i don't know what it is i don't know what it's connected to i guess that's that's just how people dress in in england England, you know yeah Yeah. and then you then i'd come back to america and and i'd see back in my hometown i'd start to see these kids i'm like this is so weird there's this one little bench full of kids and Then you'd start as we became teenagers, we'd start to learn more about them. There was another place they would all hang out. There was a cafe called the Espresso Roma Cafe and they would all hang out there. And, you know, I had a few kids that were like two years older than me that would go to, you know, they're in high school and I'm still in like middle school. They'd be like, yeah, dude, that guy is, um, you know, they're like, it's almost like you had like baseball cards You'd be like, here's that guy. That's Matt Rat. He's like, he's in a band called Rat Pack. That's Bomber. He's in a band called RKL. And, and they all had these names that sounded like stage names because it was like Bomber, Matt Rat, Lynn Strait, there's a boy named Lynn, okay, and it was his real name, but like, that sounded like a punk name, like Lynn Strait, this guy, Bohawk. Um, there was just, there was just all the, I know I'm missing a few, a bunch of them, but there was, there was all these characters that you would sort of hear about and they were so animated because everyone kind of had their own look, you know. And there was Vince from RKL with dreadlocks. He kind of looked like one of the guys in Bad Brains or something, you know? And like, it was just rad. It's just, it was really kind of for us, it just, you know, sort of fed that same imagination where you're like, wow, look at that, like this iconic looking person. That's kind of, you know but actually they're from my hometown, you know? Yeah. And so you would, once we started actually going to shows and realizing that that was such a welcoming, inclusive community where they were like, dude, as long as you're cool at a punk show, as long as if someone falls down the pit, you pick them up or you, if, you know, I remember falling down in the pit and someone picked me up and I was like, this is so fucking cool. Like, this is such a rad world. It's, it's like, it seems really scary from the outside looking in, but once you're in there, it's actually like super loving, you know, and super supportive and like I said, when I, we played our show, we were like these, you know, kids who could barely play. And people were like, fuck yeah, man, that was fucking awesome. They're like supportive, you know? And it, that's amazing. Like in the world of like other bands, like that were maybe like the heavy metal bands, they would have just been like, how fast can you play that guitar solo? It was like, it was like a sort of like pissing contest. And it just it, it didn't seem as inclusive. Like I remember seeing this band once, I'm not going to name names, be, uh, but they were like, they were a local heavy metal band and they stopped the show because a pit broke out. <laughs> They're like, we're not that kind of band, man. You guys are going to get hurt. This isn't about that fucking shit. <laughs> you know? And I was like, that is the lamest thing I've ever seen in my life. Um, <laughs> but you know, um, so Lynn Strait was like, you'd see that dude at every show, he'd always be sitting next to the kick drum, like holding it. Like it was almost like his like self appointed job to hold the kick drum. In place so it wouldn't you know get moved forward when the drummer was you know so you see like Eric Sandin from NoFX playing and then Lynn would be sitting there with his leather jacket like hunched in, like I have all these old pictures and you just see Lynn in the picture all the time. He's just like hold, sitting on the stage holding it. And he wasn't really a musician, but then eventually he started playing bass and he he was in this band. Around the same time as my my band with my friends called Section Eight and Joey's band called Chemical, there was another band that's important to mention called um, Lethal Dose. And Lethal Dose had Dave Casillas, who would eventually be the guitar player of NoFX. Before um, he was like the guitar player of NoFX, maybe before the guy who was before El Jefe.
0: Right. Got you. Okay?
1: And then you had the other guitarist of Lethal Dose was a guy named Sean Dewey, who would eventually be the guitarist of Lagwagon on their first couple of records, right? And then would after Lagwagon form into his own band called Buck Wild, and the drummer of Buck Wild was Dave. So you're seeing how interconnected all this shit is, and why I really need to fucking write a book before I forget all this shit, right? <laughs> yeah, man, and
0: and so many yeah. like so many really interesting figures that, are, as you pointed out, like diverse, uh, but yet it was one supportive community
1: super supportive and like i said different styles of music i somewhere i have a flyer with toad the wet sprocket and no effects on the same (laughs) bill
0: who was above who was above the other
1: it didn't even matter back then because it was just like kids playing a show like both of the bands had in common that they played like underground shows and we didn't know toad the wet sprocket was going to become this like sort of you know mainstream kind of middle of the road rock band back then it was just like oh that's glenn's band and that band loves the smiths and you know, and, and like the replacements. So like they're on the bill too. It wasn't like, Oh, they can't play. Cause it's a different stuff. To me, it was, it was all the same style of music. And it was just simply music played by teenagers who weren't mainstream, you know, mm-hmm. who were like weirdos, you know? So it was like Toad was this kid, Glenn, who was this like sort of intellectual um, kid who would hang out at the coffee house and had super long hair and would like write poetry and, and um, you know, uh, love yeah love bands like rem early rem and um then like the replacements and whatever and so they were on the show too they just happened to and, and to me they were just as much of a punk band like they put out their own cassette tape they didn't do it on vinyl they put out a cassette tape and kids bought it in our hometown and eventually like a major label found out about them and signed them and their singer was only 15. wow which is fucking rad, you know? Like see, he was part of the punk scene just as much as everybody else, but he if if toad would have happened maybe 15 years later, they probably would have been considered emo. You know, cuz he was like the the sort of proto emo kid. He was like the the more poetic one that like would hang out with the girls and sort of drink coffee and talk about so, like I remember when I first heard Sunny Day Real Estate years later, I was like this reminds me of early Toad the Wet Sprocket. <laughs> It's like if Toto's Sprocket was played by people who grew up playing hardcore. Anyway, long, so many so many tributaries I could go down. But do you need on...
0: to do? You need to do a book on the history of Santa Barbara punk rock. It seems like you're I... the guy for the. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. you have an airbnb your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host good job
1: i feel like there's like five people that would be nerdy enough to want to read it myself included so and i'm going to get a free copy of it so i don't know maybe you you'll get a free copy of it but i'll do it you know it's it's you know that's why i really appreciate these opportunities like the fact that you have this space that you've created for people to tell their stories in a long form way, it's just so rad because these stories do need to be told. And,
0: um, Oh, thank you. you man. Know,
1: it's, it's, it's really cool. And I appreciate that, that, um, it's connected to stuff you, you care about, but, um, you know, so that band lethal dose, it was those guys and Lynn straight played bass and then uh, Lynn ended up eventually reinventing himself as a singer. And, um, I mean, he was always a punk rocker and then eventually he started the band snot with these other guys that had been in a local speed metal band um this guy mikey who was in a band called Chronics, and i can't remember who else was in the original version of snot but it was, was sonny
0: in the original lineup sonny mayo sonny,
1: yeah i think sonny was the sonny mayo was the original and shannon lineup. shannon larkin and went, on drums shannon larkin had moved to santa barbara and so he was playing drums i can't remember how sonny ended up in santa barbara and then there was this guy named uh Oh, my God, I'm going to forget his fucking name. Tumor, who played bass. I don't know what his real name is, but they called him Tumor. (laughs) And then, um, yeah, so there was like, I mean, it was really, like I said, it was just a pile of musicians and weirdos. And some of them more sounded more punk. Some of them sounded more speed metal. Some of them sounded more like this. And out of all that, that sort of pile of just whatever, it just got some, somehow it started getting fertilized. And, you know, bands like started getting more organized and, and pulling stuff off, I had that band um, that I joined with Luke and Chris Shiflet that uh, was called Lost Kittens. I was in that at the same time I was in Section Eight. And then at one point, I was going to Lost Kittens had moved to L.A. Luke and Chris had were you know graduated high school, moved to L.A. and I was commuting down to L.A. as a you know when I was like sixteen or seventeen to keep playing with them and trying to keep my studies up because my mom was like, "You can't fucking do this unless you keep like straight A's." And I'm like, okay, well that's a small price to pay to be able to like drive down to LA and like hang out in, in nightclubs and play shows on weeknights. She was like, as long as you never miss a day of school and you keep your grades to be A's and B's, then you can do this. So in a weird way that inadvertently made me a really good student because I had something to lose. Whereas a lot of people that I grew up with that played music, they just ended up being the sort of fuck ups, like they would do drugs or drink at school or drop out. For me i was like keeping it real you know pretty straight edge unless it was the weekend and like sitting in the front row of my classes asking questions you know going to the office hours because <laughs> i i was like panicked that i was gonna lose the the my favorite thing in the world which was playing in bands you know um and I love so that, I, that so,
0: commitment was always there i love it
1: oh dude i was like it's a fucking small price to pay if i get to do this like Because Luke and Chris were swinging for the fences. They were like, dude, look, we're not going to fucking wait for you because you're in high school. Like, if we get a record deal and do this, we're going. Like, we're we're coming down here with one reason, and that's because we want to fucking do, like, what Guns N' Roses did. Like, we want to fucking play shows, get discovered, and then go for it. And I was like, okay. So I'm doing that, and I'm doing Section 8, and I'm just trying to be a kid, and I'm going to school, you know, and I had a part-time job. And I was just kind of like, at one point, it was just too much. And I was like, okay. I'm going to move to LA too. As soon as I finish high school, I'm going to move to LA and join those guys. And I'm going to let go of section eight because it, to me, it was like that was connected to my neighborhood band and I love Dave and Derek as friends, but I was like, if I had to choose one band, it, I feel like it's going to have more of a, you know, it's going to, I'm, I'm going to go to the next level with, I'm going to go with Luke and Chris and do this lost kittens thing. And I sort of, so I sort of let section eight go around the time Dave started dating Joey's ex-girlfriend. <laughs> And then Joey kind of had let chemical go. And he basically moved in and, you know, got Dave kicked out of the band. He basically said like, I'll be your guy's singer if you get rid of that guy. And to was sort of to, as a sort of gentle fuck you to Dave for yeah. stealing his girlfriend, he got Dave out of the band and kind of took over the band section eight. Which I is think totally he basically
0: worse. said that almost exact phrasing when I was speaking to him about the history of Lagwagon is he oh, said awesome. I kind of I was in a band with this guy who hooked up with my girlfriend and I kind of got him kicked out and, and and you know took over the band essentially as like my revenge
1: Oh awesome <laughs> I'm glad Joey remembers it poss- um, that way too cuz I always worry that maybe it's revisionist history you know <laughs> but yeah um but yeah then he he
0: said they were called section eight and he said they were in some record store and they saw a poster for like a hip-hop group that was called section eight who looked like a bunch of real mean dudes and so joe was like we better change the name because apparently fat uh, mike didn't like the name either
1: well it's funny i i I have some show and tell here this is a flyer from uh no effects playing a show in santa barbara with Section eight and a Amazing. band called the Grim, who were another band on Mystic Records, by the way. And Tim from the Grim worked for No Effects for years. Timmy the Turtle. They probably have a song about him.
0: There you right? go. There you he's go. He's the singer
1: of The Grim, Tim Grimm. We called him Tim Grimm forever. And then Section Eight. And this was so this was after the era where I was playing with Section Eight. They went on and, and Derek's brother Brian started playing bass for them and Joey became the singer. So he's the same framework and he kind of rewrote a lot of the songs and then brought in his own stuff. And I mean, Joey's an incredible songwriter. So he really kicked that band into another dimension. So, you know, due respect, you know, even though we were in the early, we started section eight, Joey, Joey finished section eight, you know? And then because of his relationship with Fat Mike, who I think like they had known each other socially from when No used to always play in Santa Barbara. I think that, I, I don't know, I, I, obviously you had Joey on the show, so he, people can listen to his story, but I, I think the, Cause Derek and I were st- still remained really close friends. And he'd always tell me, he's like, dude, we made this demo. We called it the super big demo, um, on cassette. It was like the artwork, like a super big gulp from seven 11. Mm-hmm. And somehow I think I might be getting this wrong, but I think Joey ran into fat Mike, Joey was like painting houses, maybe in the Bay area or something. Like, cause I think one of his relatives lived up there and he ran into fat Mike somewhere. I and think Patton it was Mike,
0: at an RKL show I'm not even kidding.
1: Maybe it's entirely possible cuz Joey would be there cuz Joey actually grew up with RKL. Like they were neighborhood friends from childhood. They probably went to grade school together. There was uh, this is so random but also that the famous actor Josh um, Brolin. Yeah. Josh Brolin, he grew up in their neighborhood too and like him and Joey were like best friends when they were kids and Josh would hang out with RKL. So like I said the rich kids lived <laughs> that's why they're called rich kids on LSD. Yeah. Um Makes and, sense. Uh, right? And <laughs> there's actually a, a, a amazing movie called, I think it's called um twenty first twentieth century women or something like that that came out a few years ago. And the director and writer of that movie also was from their scene, and he like puts a bunch of that stuff, sprinkles a bunch of that sort of 70s and 80s Santa Barbara culture, Montecito amazing. culture in the anyway, so much fucking shit to talk about. But um so Joey like went up, like somehow he encountered, reconnected with Fat Mike and Fat Mike was, this was probably at the time they were looking for a guitar player that would eventually become El Jefe because they NoFX went through a few different guitar players. The core of NoFX was always the two Eric's and Mike, you know, they started out as a three piece and then eventually they had Dave Casillas and then they had that blonde guy, I can't remember his name. And then they had um, El Jefe, right? And they've had him ever since. So at the time they were looking for guitarists, And I think Joey had designs on auditioning to be their guitarist. He was like, dude, I should try out. And he's like, well, do you have anything recorded of like your example of your, you know, show me that you're like an adept musician of any, And and I think Joey gave him the super, the section eight demo, most not to see if Fat Mike would like to listen to his band, but to basically show Fat Mike that he was musical enough to be able to handle being a guitar player. Even though Joey wasn't playing guitar in section eight at the time. And (laughs) Fat Mike heard it and was like, dude, I don't want you to be my fucking guitar player. I want you to be the first band I signed to my new record company that I'm starting called Fat Records. And that's how Lagwagon got signed to Fat. And they did a, a yellow seven inch for like, I think it was angry days and maybe tragic vision. I can't remember what songs are on it, but like that was the first release by Fat Records.
0: And they weren't
1: going to, it was going to be called Section 8, but they did that name search. They saw that hip hop thing. And they, so they quickly changed it to Lagwagon. And me and all my friends were like, Lagwagon? That's, I thought that was Section 8. They're like, yeah, but we had to change the name. It was really last minute. Like none of us even knew they were going to be called Lagwagon until we like held the seven inch in our hand and saw <laughs> that like it's the same band, but they're just called something different. Such a trip, dude. So again, that was a big watershed moment in our scene because like we had, seen from a distance RKL we had seen all this stuff from a distance but Lagwagon was like people we had known and been in a band with and that was the first time to us that suddenly like to me and Chris Shiflet and all the other kids in our town we were like holy fucking shit someone from our scene like who we know and started out with is actually like you know, crossing the divide. And that's, of course, they were just signing to the singer of No Effects's new label, which Which was at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Fat Records wasn't nearly as legitimate as like Lookout or Epitaph or like a quote unquote real punk label. We just figured like, you know, whatever, he's just starting his own label, you know, it's probably not gonna be that big of a deal. And then things just started to happen. And of course, like you said, then they grabbed no use for a name then they grab you know eventually good riddance and propaganda and they start getting bands from all over basically any band that no effects encountered on tour that was good fat mike would sign and fat records just became this like cultural phenomenon at just the right time where like i said like nirvana had, dem- had nirvana had demonstrated the proof of concept you know and then green day had kind of delivered on that like possibly you know kind of broke through and showed that like a, a literally a scrappy punk band could could pull this off um and then i guess the offspring too the offspring you know they were like sort of the also ran band on epitaph but then because they had that song that became a radio hit they became they kind of advanced to go around everybody else um and then the most unlikely story was blink 182. Because Blink were like the band that would, they were like the opening, opening, opening band when like Lagwagon would play San Diego, you know, it'd be like Lagwagon, maybe Good Riddance, maybe Limp, and maybe like, you know, trying to think of what other band would have been around at the time, you know, maybe one other band and then Blink, you know, like you never thought in a million years, you thought like at their most successful they will maybe eventually become as big as 88 fingers Louie. you know what i mean like you you, you were like they're going to be like you know there's no way they're going to be and then they became bigger than anybody it's fucking crazy right and fucking
0: those crazy. first couple yeah. of records by blink are so shoddy and there's no sign really of of the band that they would become on that early stuff i it's don't such think a trip.
1: it's <laughs> such a trip dude yeah i mean i don't, it's i remember when i first heard them i never really took them very seriously because again, they were about my age. So like you never take your peers like you're like, oh, fucking people. We don't know what we're doing. The The real bands are the bands like the Clash and the Ramones and the you know, even archaeology like bands that came before us, but you never take your own generation's bands that seriously because it seems like, you know, um, you and your friends horsing around, but just in another city like that was me and my friends, but in San Diego, you know? Yeah. Um, but then, you know, again, that's the beauty of this like rock and roll narrative is that every generation, you know, does starts out kind of like standing on the shoulder of giants and the like shit that came before it, and your failure, you, you know, you're Im- you're trying to imitate it, you're trying to you know learn from it, and your failure to become it somehow turns into like a pile of fertilizer, and then through that fertilizer grows something even cooler that's like, you know, derived from the shit that you were into, but maybe has its own life. Of course, you, you know, don't take it that seriously or you don't see it that way yourself, but then other people start to come to your shows and maybe buy your music and you're like, oh shit, I see what's, now I have the time. I have have years of perspective of hindsight 2020 and I can go, oh shit, that's what happens time and time again, generation after generation. The band comes out. Thinking they're like this sort of with this imposter syndrome, like, oh, we're not as legit as the Beatles, we're not as legit as Guns N' Roses, we're not as legit as the Ramones, we're not, you know. And then you do your thing, probably because you have like surrendered the fear of like, well, I'm not, there's no way I'm ever gonna be as legit as the Rolling Stones, so might as well just have fun. And then out of that sort of lack of trying too hard, you come up with something that is pure. And then someone else sees it and enjoys it and likes it and then tells their friends about it. And then you become successful. And then a new then those people go on to form bands based on their love of your band. And then those bands go on to become successful for the, you know, generations down the line. And it just keeps on happening. It's so cool. The well, let cool me ask it, you
0: this, dude. Let yeah. me ask you this, because you got RKL, right? They inspire no effects, no effects, clearly inspire Blink-182. Each of those bands is getting bigger as it grows. But do you think that there's going to be bands out there now who grew up on blink one eighty two that are going to become bigger than them now today? Do you still think that that is a a possibility
1: I, I don't even think that's a possibility, Matt. I think that's right in front of our eyes. We just don't realize it because at this point it has transcended the it's transcended th- punk rock has transcended the the underground for so long now that it's become like i mean the fucking skateboarding was in the olympics this year dude you know that would have been on un- like skateboarding was like your fucking- skateboarding and punk rock were like you know hip-hop is one of the biggest musics in in, in you know, hip-hop culture is so big and hip-hop is essentially like the yin to punk rock's yang you know it's like the same thing was happening i consider punk rock as much as i you know love the stooges and mc5 and and the new york dolls and all that and the velvet underground I still consider punk rock really kind of forming in the late seven, in the mid to late 70s with the Ramones and, um, you know, and obviously the Sex Pistols and the Clash and all that and the Damn and the Ramones and Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers and like, and then maybe the Germs in LA, you know, I, I sort of think of that as sort of the, the, the day one for punk as we really know it. Of course, there's roots leading up to it that wouldn't, you know, without without the Stooges, and and all that, you never would have gotten there, but I feel like that's when punk really happened. Okay, well, at the same time that was incubating across the river in New York, you had kids bored, again, cause uh, I'll go back to bored teenagers, you know? Bored teenagers in Santa Barbara, bored teenagers in New York City, um, bored teenagers in Brooklyn, you know, or in Queens or whatever. And you, you get these kids like tapping into like telephone wires and like getting, drawing electricity and fucking around with like turn two turntables and a microphone, and hip-hop happens again as something for kids to do because they can't play quote unquote real music like disco or whatever was popular at the time. So punk rock to me and hip-hop are like, you know, they are fucking siblings. You know, they're 100%. like they're like
0: and skateboarding, as you say, in and between. Skateboarding two. is right there in between. Yeah.
1: Skateboarding is right there, something that was underground culture. Again, skateboarding has roots in the 60s too like you know sidewalk surfing and all that shit but really it was kind of coming together in the late 70s obviously dogtown it's a great movie to watch that dogtown documentary that was really happening you know and they were all kind of coexisting at the time as sort of like this is underground culture for for teen you know for kids and disenfranchised young people that don't fit into the sort of like you know homecoming queen you know star of the of the team kind of teenage you know ideal or whatever and so it was like people too, either too dumb and or too smart for their own good. You know, and like we that was kind of something that belonged to us. But it was, you know, eventually it's very vindicating to me. There's a lot of people like in my generation that are that are like kind of bitter and they're like, oh, punk rock, uh, you know, it's not what it used to be. And and kids today don't understand. And I'm, I've never been like that. I'm like, i I to me, it's vindicating. It's like, dude, we were fucking right we had we had like some instincts we gravitated towards something and how fucking cool is it that i just saw green day play at dodger stadium the other night you know and the skateboarding was in the olympics you know and, and you know this it's and hip hop is everywhere i think one of the bands that probably should get even more credit than than green day for delivering punk rock's sort of like seed to the mainstream In a very Trojan horse kind of way, very sneak into the kingdom and then just get in there and fucking, you know, you guys know the story of the Trojan horse, right? So like, it's the Beastie Boys. Beastie Boys are such a fucking important band. Because to me, they, they are like they were coming up in New York city. They were feral kids in New York running around after the Ramones and all that, but kind of cruising around like a seven, like Jesse where Jesse Mallon's Niagara bar is It used to be this hardcore place where like bad brain started, uh, Cro-Mags, Jesse's old band, heart attack, all that stuff was happening there. Agnostic front, Murphy's law, all that shit. And like, which again, for us from California, that was super exotic and we'd hear about it and read about it in fanzines which, you know, and you kind of fill in the blanks with your imagination of what was happening. But, like, the Beastie Boys were right there playing with those bands, and then they had the fucking, just fucking nerve and cojones to, like, as if it wasn't dangerous enough to be in the Lower East Side in the early 80s. They went across the fucking bridge and went to, like, be the only white kids at a fucking underground hip-hop party. And they saw that shit and were like, dude, we should do this. This is even more punk rock. It's kind of, to me, and this sounds fucking audacious of me to say, but to me, it reminds me exactly of me and my friends who were at the punk show and then went and found bands like Poison and Guns N' Roses at small clubs in LA. And it was like, it seemed even more, and and it's a tough sell because most people in the mainstream think of Poison and and Guns N' Roses in the same breath as like Bon Jovi and all that fucking crap. But like, they were fucking, it was audacious it was like, it felt more punk rock than punk rock. It felt like, holy shit, like, because by the time we were into punk rock, it was just like mostly like skateboarding. It was like skateboarding punk rock, you know? But people didn't have like pink mohawks anymore. <laughs> you, you go down there and there's like dudes with fucking makeup on and like giant pink hair and fucking crazy looking clothes. And it was so out, out of outrageous. But then you'd like see them after the show. They weren't like in their dressing room, you know, they'd be out. They, I remember going to see bands down there and then the guys in poison would be dressed completely as though they were like doing a fucking photo shoot for their, for their record or something, just on the street, handing out flyers and be like, Hey dude, what's up, man? You want to come to our show? And you're yeah. like, zero you know fucks fucking... given. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I'm like face to face with like Ace Frehley, you know, like it seemed like this fucking, but it, but it was like, no one knew who they were yet. They were like, you know, and we were like 12, you know? So that was, that was kind of crazy to me. To me, that was like, the way we saw that shit and, and, and then we're like, okay, we got to bring some of that home with us. And that's how we like did the lost kittens and stuff. Whereas, and we play punk shows all the time, you know, and they were cool to us, even though we were like wearing fucking eyeliner and, you know, had crazy, like, you know, crazy clothes on the, um, the beastie boys going into hip kind of crossing the, the aisle crossing the river literally and seeing hip hop and then bringing it back to the hardcore community. It was, uh, uh, that's a really fucking important thing. Like just from like a sociological standpoint, you know, and then into the
0: mainstream, as you say,
1: absolutely. And again, they were probably like most like bands like guns and roses were probably missing and Nirvana. Most of these bands, by the time you get in the mainstream mainstream doesn't see gray area, they see black and white. So Nirvana was like, you know, embraced by the one of the things that broke Kurt Cobain's heart was Nirvana was embraced largely by the very people that used to beat him up in school. You know, people would be like, fuck yeah, Nirvana, let's go fucking mosh. And he's like, no, we're music for like weirdos and nerds and and like, you know, fucking intellectual, you know, outcasts. This isn't heavy metal. This isn't the fucking like bro party, you know, and the same thing with like, Guns N' Roses, they, they were like very, you know, Guns N' Roses got like lumped in with hair metal, but they were anything but. Like Guns N' Roses' favorite band was Hanoi Rocks, and Duff is a fucking punk rocker, you know, and, and all those all those guys were like, you know, um, but again, they, 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 they have to put everyone in a box. And we felt the same thing happened with Sugar Cult, to be honest with you. We, we got thrown into this box because of this, at the time we emerged, our first record came out in 2001, and they were like, oh yeah, I love it. Fucking Sugar Call, Sound 41, Simple Plan, Good Charlotte, got it. Pop punk, yeah, woo. And then it was like a couple years later, yeah, fuck yeah, Emo, fall out Boy, Sugar Call. And we're like, okay, like, is that cool or is that lame? Like, it's, it's, I saw it happen with my own band. I was like, we set out to be like, our favorite band when we started Sugar Call, our favorite band was Super Drag, this band from the 90s called Super Drag, we were really into. And um, the idea was like, you know singer grew up loving nirvana and green day and um we i had played in, in punk bands most of my life um i also before Sugar cult i'm jumping through time periods here but like um
0: it's all good just a heads up dude we're gonna have to wrap it in about 10 minutes because i've got another chat um, oh my god okay okay, okay cool well, this,
1: this okay cool well um thank you well, okay, so so working backwards from from Sugar Cult, right before Sugar Cult, I had played for a while I I played in um in this in the Atari's when they first started out. So I was in the in the first version of the Atari's on the Anywhere But Here record, and that was mostly because Derek, who I played in my first band with, who eventually became the drummer Lagwagon, he had played drums on the first Atari's record and like this moved back, you know, um moved to the Midwest to play with Chris, and then Chris was like dude, this is great. We, you know, I want you to be my drummer. And Derek was like, look, dude, I can't fucking live here. I'm moving back to Santa Barbara. You're fine to follow me and I'll keep playing with you. So Chris basically packed his bag and moved to Santa Barbara. And then the day he got there, we were actually at a show in the Ivy Park. It was the band, The Other, which was like members of our Kale's band. We were watching The Other play and Chris comes up to me. He goes, Hey dude, um, I'm in the band with Derek. You want to play uh, bass? He told me you're a bass player. And I was like, okay, fuck. <laughs> you know, so I went and toured with them for a while. That band kind of fell apart. At the same time, I was actually in New York City with Derek. For some reason, we were in New York during CMJ Festival, and we were at Jesse's old club called um, Coney Island High. And I see me first in the Gimme give with the Swingin' Utters playing, because they were all my friends. And I was like, I see Max from the Swingin' Utters playing bass. And I go up to him, I'm like, dude, why are you playing bass? What happened to your bass player? And he's like, oh, he's he quit the band. He's going to graduate school or something. and. And I was like, oh shit, man. Well, um, I was kind of un- unhappy with the Ataris, to be honest, because Derek was like a dear friend of mine from growing up and he had gotten, he had become strung out on heroin. <laughs> you know, there's no way to mince words. He'd become a drug addict. And it was just really sad for me to, any, as anyone who has ever been friends with someone who's a drug addict, it's a very sad situation because no matter how much you try to like support them or help them, it's really something they can it, they can only do for themselves, you know? So, like, it seems like, like a lot
0: cool. of people from your area fell foul for that as well. Oh, you know, it was whether it's Lynn dammit. or Jason or-
1: oh yeah, happened to Lynn Stray, happened to the guys in rkl and then Derek, who was such like I said, he was like the kid who was always good at everything. You know, was so smart, like the most talented. But you know, I was kind of like thinking I can't keep playing with the Atari's. Like they, they you know, Chris was just you know too young. He was he didn't really know what he was doing. The band was really kind of held together by duct tape. And, you know, um, and Derek was, you know, I couldn't be shoulder to shoulder with Derek and get to a town and watch him just run off and ask someone where the bad part of town was. And, you know, I could, just didn't want to see that happen in real time. But I was kind of looking for like other, you know, I sort of had my sleeping with one eye open seeing if there was any other options. And when I saw Max playing bass, I was like, dude, here's my number. Like, call me up with, if you ever need someone to fill in on bass. I, I love your band, you know, cause I love the swinging udders. I'm on tour with the Ataris, we're crashing at my mom's house in between um, tour dates for a night and I check my answering machine there and it's Max going, hey, it's Max with the Swingin' and just wondering if you're still down to play bass. Um, remember we talked about it in New York and I'm like, oh yeah. And he gives me his number, I call him up, he's like, so we're uh, leaving for Europe in about um, 10 days and we're gonna be gone for about two months. So just wondering if you wanna like learn our songs and play bass, because I really don't wanna play bass. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> You know, again, just say yes. (laughs) And so he told me which songs to learn. And I spent the rest of the Atari's tour, like, learning their songs, you know, with a, like, a a disc man and some headphones and a little acoustic guitar we had in the van. And then at the end, serendipitously, the Atari's tour ended in San Francisco, which happens to be where the Swing and Utters live, because I lived in Santa Barbara at the time, you know, and... I just had them literally drop me off with my gear. I'm just like, drop me off with my
0: base. From one the, tour I, straight to the next. Love it. Yeah. And I just
1: dropped, got dropped off at some random address I had. And then in, in the mission in San Francisco, I knock on the door. It's like some chick covered in tattoos. And she's just like, yeah, the guys aren't here, but you can come in and hang out or whatever. And, and then I met the guy like Max showed up and I'm like, so dude, when are we going to practice? He's like, oh, I think we're going to practice like tomorrow night, dude. I'm like, okay. Um, I was like freaking out. I'm like, I just, I don't even know these guys. I know Max. I don't know anybody else in the band. I, I, I think I learned the songs right, but I don't know, you know, and, and then the next night happens. I'm like, are we going to rehearse? He's like, oh, I, our drummer's hanging out with his girlfriend and um, probably not I can be able to make it. So, so literally we end up getting together once and rehearsing once the set. We ran through the set once and the next morning I want a fucking plane all the way to Berlin, Germany, and we play 48 shows in 50 days. I literally had the fucking guitar tech, like um, Shannon. I had him holding up like a, a cheat sheet with my like I, on the plane. I made little cheat sheets for myself. Where it was like, and there's songs like it's almost like the Ramones, where like it's deceptively it seems like it's easy, but they're so yeah. similar that you get like nervous. You're like, is this the one that starts that goes D A D A or the one that goes A D A D? You know? <laughs> and so it was it was kind of, but it was it was a real trial by fire, and I and I learned so much about touring. We shared a bus with with no use for name. And at the time, Chris Shiflet was the guitarist of no use for name. So here's me and my buddy Chris from growing up after we played in the Lost Kittens for four years together. Here we are back, in you know, in the same tour bus, both of our first time touring Europe. And we're just hanging out all the time, reminiscing about growing up and just like just tripping out, man. It was just such an amazing thing. And like I basically thought after that, I was like, well, fuck, I guess I could say I did it. I went and got to tour Europe with a band that has actual fans that know their songs. And I came home from that and was like, okay, what do I do? Do I join the Swingin' Edders? Another, another friend's band was Nerf Herder and that's a whole other story. Honestly, there's too many stories. I had He's Linus running.
0: on the show. I know he was in the band way later, but... um. Right,
1: yeah. right. Well, it, I mean, there's so many things that happened in between like me and Joey at around the same time as the Swingin' Edders and the Ataris, me and Joey had a, Joey had started a record label called My Records, and he kind of overbooked himself with Lagwagon as he always does, and basically came over to my house. I was still living in my parents' house, and he came over to my house with a computer and like a folder full of shit, and he's like, here, dude, can I just pay you a couple hundred bucks a month, and you'll just, can you just run my label for me? I gotta go, sorry, later. And then he just disappeared, and I was just like, um, all right, I'm gonna figure out how to run a record company because I was just always the guy in my band who would make all the phone calls and like do all the business y shit in my bands. So I ended up running his label, My Records, and we signed Nerf Herder, which was the old drummer of Lost Kittens, my band with Chris Shiflet, Steve Sherlock. He used to have long hair, now, of course, he's got the glasses. He was the drummer of Lost Kittens, and then the singer of Nerf Herder, Perry, was the singer of this other great local band. So they joined forces, had this band. I was screen printing t shirts with Steve Sherlock at a job that I had at the time. And he was like, dude, let me play you my new band with Perry. And I was like, okay, he played me Nerf Herder. And so I go to Joey, I go, dude, you gotta hear fucking Steve and Perry's new band they are so good. And he listened to it and he's like, dude, this is great. We should put this out. We, We put it on the first compilation we put out. And then he was gonna make a seven inch. And I was like, dude, if we're gonna go to all the trouble of setting up the drums and the microphones just to make a seven inch, why not just make a whole fucking record? It's going to be, it's actually cheaper to press a CD than it is to press a seven inch. And, and it's the same price to set up the drums for two songs or for 10 songs. So why don't you just make a full length record? He was like, okay. And we made that first Nerf Header record. We put it out on my records and I made phone calls. I got that, that song Van Halen on the radio. And that was when my life could have changed. I could have turned into a record executive. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I just, and I had a panic attack and I was like, dude, I want to fucking play music. Um, and so I just, I kind of steered the ship. It was like fate was kind of telling me be a guy who run who signs bands for record companies, cause I was pretty good at it and I enjoyed it. Um, the next band we signed was Ride All High and they got signed right away. After we signed them, they got signed to a major label. Then we put out no armchair Martian. We did a bunch of shit, but I just missed playing. And, um, I don't know, I started, I did that swing and Utters gig, then I actually played in Nerfer for, for a little while, and I just kind of, and and the Ataris, and I just kind of got to this point where I was like, fuck, man, maybe just, I just don't feel, like, it doesn't, I love playing music, but I don't just want to, like, be some hired gun in someone else's band, you know? Like, it just doesn't feel like the, I don't, I don't, I feel disingenuous when I'm, like, signing an autograph for some swing and Utters fan who just saw us play in Paris, it's not my band yeah i'm playing bass on stage but it's not something i helped build and like i kind of went home and had this weird thing where i was like i've been playing in bands since i was like 14 years old and now i think it's time to maybe just like hang up my cleats and i literally verbalized that i was done like i I remember telling my girlfriend at the time i was like i think i'm done i've I like i've had all these other bands i didn't even tell you about popsico which was my band in the early 90s right now we're reissuing a bunch of that music. Um, I had this band between section eight lost kittens. And then eventually all this other stuff I'm talking about, there was a band in the early nineties called popsico that I really thought was going to be my band. Like it was like the one that was going to happen. You know, we had all this excitement. We had built this thing out. We made a record and then unfortunately our singer died, um, which is a whole other story. Um, but, uh, and that band was more like cheap trick replacements uh, we opened for green day when they first came to town through on the dookie tour we actually i uh, have this to show you we headlined our own show and had weezer opening for us because <laughs> wow. they were just starting out anyway and so, much shit. Remember, so much i remember i
0: remember wax that's joe sibs band right
1: and joe sibs band wax which is i mean dude like i'm telling you this whole this flyer could be a whole episode because yeah. you've got joe sib in wax you Obviously, Weezer, who was called Weezer because they lived in the same apartment complex as Joe Sib. And they thought, well, Wax is popular, so we should call our band Something that Starts With A W. <laughs> and then Green Thumb, this is a mind blower. Green Thumb was Chris Shiflet, my buddy from Lost Kittens. His brother, Scott, who now plays in Face to Face. Scott's been on the, the show. Love Scott. Scott Shiflet, great guy. And he was the reason we knew joey cape because he was chris's older cool older brother who was friends with joey cape which is why all those older guys were nice to us because they there all uh, respected scott it's so fucking crazy but it's the reason chris is so good at guitar because he had older brother scott and even older brother mike and to get any respect he had to be able to play like randy rhodes by the time he was 13 or they were just gonna like fucking whip him with a wet towel you know and kick his ass you know so um anyway green thumb was chris and scott Shiflet, and then josh freeze playing drums who's now like a fucking legendary drummer and then the guitar the other guitar player um opposite chris was bill armstrong well bill and joe bill from green thumb joe from wax bill had a label called called dummy joe had a label called side one they joined forces and it became side one dummy
0: Same. That's I'm telling you, incredible. dude. I feel like
1: fucking Forrest Gump of like modern rock. <laughs> like all of these things that happened, somehow I was fucking there. Like,
0: <laughs> dude, I think that's I, a good note to end it on. If that's all right, remember, as well.
1: That's yeah, fucking. That's crazy, perfect. Dude. That's. Could you just but, hold yeah. up that
0: flyer one more time?
1: Wait, I'm sorry. What's that? Could you just hold up that flyer oh, one
0: more time, just to yeah, the screen. Yeah, I'll, I'll, just...
1: I'll email it to you too, dude. Don't worry about it. But yeah, so yeah. this was a, this, and this was just a simple show where I just I called up. I've I've gone and seen Weezer in LA, they were another local LA band and I saw they, I thought they were cool. And this was always my move. I'd say, I find a cool band in LA or San Francisco and I'd be like, dude, you guys are rad. If, if we can come open for you down here sometime, I'll have you come open for my band in Santa Barbara sometime. So like simple, you know, barter system, you come play in front of me and my friends and crash on our couch. We'll come play for you and your friends and crash on your couch. And we would just sort of, that's how we would sort of create this social network of bands. And so I called Rivers up. I was like, dude, you should come play in Santa Barbara with us. And he's like, well, we just finished our debut record and we've never played a show out of town before. This was actually Weezer's first ever out of L.A. show. And they got to play with my old band Popsico. That's so anyways, hilarious. all that shit, dude. And then we put out my records and I'm just going to fast forward if you give me like two more minutes, because the bottom line is I had had this whole fucking life that went from illiterate to Section 8, and Lost Kittens, to Popsico, to, you know, My Records, to um, the Ataris, and the Swingin' Utters, and, you know, and all these other little bands that I'm not even going to bother telling you about, the the sort of other ones in between. And I get to this point in life where I'm like, all right, man, I had my fun. Maybe now it's time to fucking cut off my hair and tuck in my shirt and become a grown-up. Like, you know, like, I can't keep doing this forever, you know? If one band after another doesn't work out for whatever reason, and that's when I meet, him from sugar cult and we end up fucking you know i I end up you know taking the gig as switching from bass to guitar taking the gig thinking it'll just be fun for the time being and then 20 years later (laughs) we're fucking celebrating the 20 year anniversary of our debut record which honestly like you know bouncing off the walls and stuck in america then the record after that with memory you know really kind of changed my life um you know and opened up all the other doors that have been open for me, you know, be able to do this other career as a music business professor and, and all the other th- things. It's just, it's so weird. Like I heard once someone say the expression, the day is darkest before the dawn. You know, like just when I thought my fucking, you know, my singer had died in a car accident from Popsico at the same place Lynn Strait died in his car accident. You know, our scene had like, all these bands in our scene had gotten signed right after popsico was over and i thought i missed the fucking wave you know and then in 2001 i connect with these other guys and we start a band and we're like modeled after power pop bands that's why I'm, i told you wear my Plimsoul shirt sure. i always loved power pop and i felt like i was bored of playing in punk bands i was just bored of the scene you know i was like this is so limiting and it's become kind of i mean i love punk rock but like to me it like with the warp tour and all that it was a wonderful thing but it also started to become a little too with all due respect in my opinion it started to become kind of codified and i feel like punk it stopped being punk to be punk you know as much as i that music's near and dear to me and i and i have so much connection to it i was like dude i want to do something similar in spirit to the lost kittens where it's like you're taking the energy and fuck you attitude of punk but you're dropping it into a different style of of like you know, approach to music, to, to music. And so with Lost Kittens, it was more like inhabiting the spirit of Hanoi Rocks and Guns N' Roses and like seventies, you know, hard rock, like Aerosmith and whatnot. Well, with Sugar Call, it was essentially the same thing, but like, I was obsessed with like, you know, I was obsessed with like early, early eighties Tom Petty records and like the, the Clash London Calling and like um, the cars and the knack and like cheap trick. It was sort of like the power, whatever I would call a sort of power pop. It was like, how do we take that and, and kind of inject punk rock soul and attitude into that just more exciting early Elvis Costello records, Nick Lowe, all that shit. We were like finding in the news record stores and we were obsessed with it. We're like, couldn't, can we do something sort of in this world? There was this band that was really great called the exploding hearts you know, they, they, where they all died in a car, tragic van accident. There was like certain bands that sort of like approached that, but they always seem to be so like tied to being retro. And we were like, we don't want to be retro. We want to do something modern and forward thinking, but take like some of this like, you know, underappreciated elements of or under misunderstood shit like from the past and like inject it into something new. And that's kind of what we did with Sugar Cult. And we, you know, again, like, <laughs> Like most shit, we got lumped in with this movement of bands. But, you know, I love a lot of those bands, too. I love Jimmy Eat World's Bleed American. That was a fucking great record. And we, you know, a lot of those bands in um, Green Day, American Idiot, of course. Um, and we just, and I saw it as a positive. I was like, this is a cool opportunity to take what I've learned through all these fucking years And finally be able to like realize it and put it into this band that's actually getting some attention. We ended up getting songs on the radio and getting these big tours. And when we toured with bands like Good Charlotte or whatever, I thought of it again, that Trojan Horse attitude where I was like, dude, we're gonna get into this show where like we're gonna be opening. Some of these kids are seeing our band before the band they came to see, which is Sum 41 or Blink 182 or Good Charlotte, whoever we were. We were like the consummate opening band for years before we started headlining. And lots of people, including from your country, from England, we opened for Blink in England. They're like, dude, you were the first band I ever saw. Because we were the opening band. So, of course, they had to see us. They didn't want to see us first. They wanted to see Blink, but they had to get through us first. And so, like, we popped a lot of rock and roll cherries. And I look at it as, like, I'm kind of doing as a fan. And, you know, I'm doing a lot of, I feel like. Yeah, I want the band to become popular. And of course, I want you to buy my T-shirt and all that shit. But more the bigger calling, the mission is like, I want to be the change I want to see in the world. And I feel like if you come see our band, you're going to subconsciously get something from us. You're going to get some of those nutrients that I've digested and metabolized through the years of my fucking obsessions with like cool shit from the past. You're going to get that through our band. You're probably not going to get it through... The band you're going to see after us you're going to get other cool shit from them but from us you're going to get it's you gonna you're going to you're going to learn indirectly about some other cool shit and hopefully we'll plant some seeds that'll eventually grow into cooler shit you know and it's just it's just all part to me it's connected to me being like a fan of music and also sort of just a curator to the ongoing exhibit of rock and roll history you know Always looked at it like that. Like I feel like a certain like I feel sort of indebted to that. Like I want to be a messenger of that cool shit because it's kind of a it's a secret history, you know. Anyways, I could go on this on forever. So thank you so much for your time, dude. I appreciate it,
0: dude. You too, man. And and um, thank you for allowing me to kind of vessel some of that firsthand anecdotal um, experience and passion. Um, the stories you've told today have been great. I've loved hearing them. I've loved hearing them. And from the historical, like end of the the spectrum, there's a lot of stuff that I didn't know. So there's been a lot of like areas that have been really filled, um, and and tied together. And um, it's just been really nice hanging out and spending some time getting to know you, man. Well, dude, thank
1: you so much. And and again, like you're right, dude. I'm inspired by you. I see that you wrote a book of a few friends that have. Um, that have written books and and you know whenever I tell these stories, someone just usually stops me. They're like, "Dude, you got to fucking, uh, you got to write, you got to write this shit down." And again, it's that same thing where you're like, "Why would anyone care about these stories?" You know, like you think like, "Well, the, please kill me" is a story you should read. Fucking, you know, nothing but a good time is a book you should read. But then you realize like, I'm trying to like put myself ten years from now and look back and go, I, you know, if I don't fucking write this shit down maybe no one will and yeah or worse someone else is going to do it but maybe not get not get the story right they're gonna be like lagwagon a great band from san francisco and you're gonna be like no they're not from san francisco they're from santa barbara (laughs) you know but yeah
0: you have to do it i did forget
1: to mention um me and joey have had a band all along through sugar cults thing called bad astronaut too
0: i know you have and i love bad astronaut i fucking love bad astronaut i will probably be starting this episode with a little 30 second clip of awesome. one of their chains. Um, yeah, the box set
1: we just put out that's like, you know, we were me and Joey were doing all this press for this box set, knowing all the while that it was completely out of print already. <laughs> we're, like, we're selling something that's not for sale. We're basically just here to rub this in people's faces. <laughs> like, guess what? Here's this thing you didn't buy. Here's what you know? could have had. But anyways, dude,
0: start yeah. this book.
1: <laughs> yeah, I got to do. Well, I'm going to, um, you know, I'm going to uh, hit you up, please, for maybe some, maybe some advice or guidance because like the hardest part of starting something is you just don't know where to start but i guess you know longest the longest journey begins with a single step right As the-
0: and the first is always the hardest yeah i'm happy to help in any way mate and i can always link you up with my publisher i can't guarantee that it's something they would be interested in but it's worth an ask is isn't your it?
1: publisher rare bird
0: yeah do you yeah, know i Titan? actually
1: I know Tyson. Yeah. 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 I know Tyson. And, and I contributed to this PowerPop book that they put out. And he's he's a rad dude. He's a, hopefully you've had him on your show. He's fine. I have. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's got a great story. Yeah. Well, but get yeah. On, get on the email
0: to him and be like, here's my idea.
1: Should I <laughs> yeah, start? I mean, it? He'll, he'll bust my balls about this because he and I actually had a meeting a few years ago and, and he was like, dude, like you've got the the hardest he was like you have a couple books you have to write it, he's like you, you you don't just have one book you've got a few books so you better get started so yeah well hold me accountable and um dude i look forward to having an opportunity to meet you in person someday man you just seem like such a cool dude and i really appreciate what you do for the scene and um it's really inspiring and it's and it's badass and uh yeah dude Thank another you, good but- excuse to come to england Yeah. So
0: Thank you very much, Marco. That really means a lot, man. And um yeah, one side of the pond we will. If not this side, then likely your side beforehand. But if you're over here, keep me posted and um yeah, I look forward to it too. Right on.